Welcome to episode 12 of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcasts, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 12, The Best Thing Ever. This is the fifth installment of our series analyzing all of the component parts of what might be America's favorite meal, a cheeseburger deluxe. And today, we're moving off to the side of our sandwich to one of the most universally appealing foods ever devised by the imagination of human beings, le pommes frites, the french fry. Here's one of our regular correspondents, Maudie Nelson from Columbia University. In terms of something that's just plain old delicious, I mean, it's really hard <laughs> it's, to beat a fried potato. It honestly. has everything the mouth wants. The fat coats the mouth and makes everything taste smoother and creamier. It's got crystals of sol- sodium chloride, you know, salt, sitting right there, forming a saline solution in your saliva, which wakes up your mouth in a very unique, still a matter of study as to why people like that salt on the tongue. And then when you get into it, you have this nice cooked, smushy starch, which is like, you know, the icon of comfort food. It's, it's warm, it's soft, it's, it's everything. So I can't imagine a person that bites into a French fry and says, no, I don't think I want to have that anymore. And I think, I think, check your DNA. <laughs> Not human. <laughs> so let's begin our examination of this undeniably popular food by looking at the process by which it's made. Deep frying, which means to totally submerge something in liquid fat that's been heated almost to the point of boiling. As the name French fry implies, it's a process that was probably invented in France. Here's our food historian for this series, Andrew Smith from the New School University. In the late 18th century, the French were interested in food. They wanted to know what the texture and the taste would be and found that deep frying was a very successful way of, of providing a coat around whatever you were deep frying that was tasty. And so uh, consequently, they deep fried a lot of things, potatoes of which were one. So wherever you think uh, lots of other people claim Belgium did it first, uh, could be. Uh, but we do have early evidence that the French were deep frying potatoes in the late 18th century. Now, there are a lot of food history myths out there that really don't hold water when you examine the evidence. Marco Polo, for instance, almost certainly did not introduce pasta to Italy. But there's one that sounds particularly far-fetched, but actually can't be entirely dismissed. And that's a notion that the French fry was introduced to the United States by Thomas Jefferson. He did bring a recipe back from France. And again, Thomas Jefferson is in France when this culinary change goes on. He does bring a French chef into the White House. There is a recipe name for fried potatoes, but what they really are is not clear. People were frying potatoes, but frying and deep frying are two different processes. So the answer is yes, there is a recipe that's titled uh, uh, frites that uh, people uh, have claimed is the origin of French fries. But there isn't any of that if presumably that was served at the White House, there isn't any evidence that anybody else went on and, and did what he uh, served. So it doesn't make any difference from an historical standpoint. Well, anyway, however fries originally crossed the Atlantic, when they did get here, they would have been a luxury item, something only the very wealthy would have been able to sample. This is because the process of deep frying was both very expensive and very dangerous. Expensive 
Because until the advent of large-scale industrial farming, cooking fat was very expensive. This changed specifically because of the industrial cultivation of soybeans, which are used to make what we call vegetable oil, and the unfortunately named rape seeds, which we make into what we call canola oil. Beforehand, the most popular fats to cook with were butter, which burns at very high temperatures and therefore is useless for frying, and lard, which is made of rendered pig fat, so it can only be produced by slaughtering a pig, something a typical farming family might only do once a year. Heating an entire pot full of fat to deep fry something in was a downright decadent thing to do. Yeah, I mean, you don't have, I mean, olive oil is, is something which is, particularly in the United States, very expensive because you had no uh, olive industry in America until California comes online much later. So you had to import it, and so therefore it was only for the rich. So the only oil that would have been common in America would have been lard, um, and lard was America's oil of choice all the way up until World War II. Vegetable oil, as we know it, doesn't come online until the 1930s, and that's only partly because people who are Jewish coming in don't want the lard and want something, an alternative, and so you, had, you have a number of products that come online, but they don't become um, very popular in terms of their usage until after World War II. Deep frying is dangerous because it involves the sudden immersion of organic tissue, which naturally contains a lot of water, into hot fat. And as we all know from elementary school, oil and water don't mix. We're not always cognizant, though, of how profoundly and violently they cannot mix, unless you're extremely careful with them. For example, let's say you had a pot full of boiling oil, and you decided you were going to dump a glass full of cold water into it. Here's what would happen. Oil is hydrophobic, so the two won't mix together. Instead, they'll naturally want to settle into layers. Water is more dense than oil, so it will try to sink to the bottom. It won't get there, though, because oil boils at a higher temperature than water does. So when the water hits the oil, it will immediately start quickly evaporating as it pushes its way down. As it evaporates, it turns to steam, which makes the hot oil bubble and rise. Now, air is less dense than oil, so any oil that gets pushed up into the air begins atomizing, meaning forming little droplets, which allows oxygen to come into contact with much more of the oil because more surface area is exposed. If the oil rises to the point that the pot no longer contains it well, that makes there be enough oxygen in contact with the hot oil to cause it to ignite. And then, kaboom, you end up with nothing less than a giant fireball shooting up towards the sky. This is an effect that comes up in the news every year in the run-up to Thanksgiving because of the current mania for deep-fried turkey. Turkeys naturally contain a lot of water, as does all animal tissue, and this can be seriously compounded by the fact that turkeys generally come frozen and therefore covered in ice crystals. If you heat the oil too hot, or don't leave enough empty space at the top of the pot, or don't thaw the turkey completely, then you can be in very big trouble. The U.S. Fire Administration, a division of FEMA, reports that every year, deep-fried turkey accidents in the United States cause as much as $15 million in property damage, and as many as 900 destroyed homes, 60 injuries, and 5 deaths. It's like an annual self-inflicted hurricane of poorly controlled deep-frying. Now, in all fairness, frying potatoes is on a different order of magnitude than frying whole turkeys. 
They're much smaller, obviously, so much less oil is used, and therefore any dangerous flare-ups are much easier to control. But deep-frying anything didn't really become reliably safe until the mid-20th century, with the invention of the freestanding electric deep-fryer. This provides a fireproof metal tank that is clearly marked with safe fill levels for the oil, and constantly monitors its temperature with an electronic thermometer. In one of the historical coincidences we keep running into in this series, around the same time this fryer was invented, there was also a huge decrease in the availability of inexpensive beef because of World War II. And the French fry was not a part, uh, it, was, it was fried, they were fried in the home, but they were not a part of the fast food industry until World War II. And part of it was the technology, they tried it, they experimented with it, things blew up, uh, it was dangerous, they decided it wasn't worth it. When World War II came along, you had, um, you had problems with getting uh, beef because they were um, uh, requisitioned by the government and you had very small amounts that you had to ship to something else. I mean, they have these operations going, you either close them down or you figure out alternative products. If you can't sell beef, what else are you going to sell? And so they moved to other products and potato products were one, potatoes were not rationed, they were all over the place and you could, they were low cost. And so therefore they started experimenting around with different things that they could do. People liked the fried potatoes. So that is when the association of French fries and fast food begins. And it is after World War II when beef is no longer rationed that um, you have this association between French fries and hamburgers. Now, as delicious as they are, as with all fast food staples, French fries do not have a reputation of being a particularly healthy food. A big reason for this is that they are covered in that delicious layer of fat. We talked about the metabolism of fat at some length last season in episode four, and if you remember, it's absolutely essential. You have to have a certain amount of fat in your diet to stay alive, let alone healthy. But it's a tricky thing for our bodies to work with because of that same chemical issue that makes hot fat so volatile, the incompatibility of oil and water. Our bodies famously are mostly water, 60% or even more by some estimates, and so there's a tremendously complex system of chemical packaging safeguards in place to transport fats around your body. This makes digestion of fat extremely slow. The part of the signaling to tell the stomach to uh, evacuate its contents into the duodenum involves certain um, hormones and enzymes. And when there's fat in the meal, there's slower in contact with those hormones to the cells. The, the valve at the end of the stomach is, is basically squirting, ooh, juicy, liquid food into the duodenum, and that is not gonna happen with as much rigor when it's a very high-fat meal. It happens, but it just doesn't happen as, um, like if you have a pure, like you drink orange juice, it's out of your mouth, out of your stomach, into your duodenum in no time glass of milk similarly, but a fatty meal will take longer because it has more stuff with surface area that has to be broken down, and the fat is actually a, a barrier to some of the enzymes to get to breaking things down and sending the signal to tell the squirting to take place. What all that means is basically that eating a lot of fat makes your food hang around in the stomach and intestines longer and therefore more of the food gets absorbed and metabolized. If you're truly hungry, that can be a good thing. But if you're eating too much to begin with, as so many Americans are these days, this compounds that problem. For 
person living in, in a sort of normal American environment who isn't expending the calories that we would have if we were actually doing the collect, the gathering, the preparing, the cooking the food, and, and so much other physically demanding stuff. A meal which has a lot of foods or a significant number of the calories coming from fat is a, a burdensome meal on our bodies. It is, uh, it's not going to be hard to digest. It'll be slower to digest because all that fat basically delays the emptying of the stomach. It's not an indigestion. It's just slower, slowed digestion, slower passage of food from one digestive organ into the next. Another glaring problem with deep frying is that the oils that are arguably the safest in terms of fire safety and the most flavorful for this kind of cooking are the notorious trans fats, which if you remember from episode four, are unsaturated fats that have been artificially altered to make them behave like saturated fats. The most famous examples are margarine, which is basically imitation butter, and vegetable shortening, which is imitation lard. I'll refer you back to that other episode for a complete explanation of the chemistry of trans fats, but suffice to say that they are probably the only food product that I've examined in this entire series so far that is universally acknowledged to be bad for your health. Not a single expert I've spoken to disagrees. The consensus around the detrimental qualities of these products, which are also called hydrogenated oils, has led to them being completely banned from use in restaurants and bakeries here in New York City. Most of the fat that is going to perform well to get that high temperature and get that sizzle and that crispiness is a fat which is an oil or a fat base that's rich in saturated fat, and that's often going to be a solid fat. And if it is artificially converted to something solid, in other words, it'll look like white shortening, that will have a lot of trans fat in it. Let's see, New York City has the law against, trans fats. against the trans fats. So the food industry has tried to do blends where they've um, added some amount of palm oil or fatty acids from palm oil so that they increase the number of short-chain fatty acids because those bad boys can take a ton of heat without smoking and foaming and breaking down and causing poor taste um, effects. So there are innovations in the food industry on doing that, but in the parts of the country or parts of the world where there isn't a, um, any regulation about the use of high trans fat oils, then you are going to get a fair amount of trans fat from the shortening or the solid blocks that are often used in restaurants to turn out your, your french fries. Now that we've talked so much about deep frying, it's time we turned our attention to that which we are deep-frying, the potato, which is unquestionably one of the most important food crops worldwide. Potatoes are a tuber, meaning a kind of underground structure that some plants develop to store nutrients through the winter. In this case, a plant in the nightshade family called Solanum tuberosum. They're native to South America, specifically Peru and Bolivia, and there, they've been the primary staple food for thousands of years. Now, to call something a primary staple food could really be seen as a euphemism for poverty food, which is to say that which people in a particular part of the world eat when they can't afford to eat anything else. 
And all of these staple foods, wheat in Europe and the Middle East, rice in Asia, corn in Middle America, and so forth, share certain characteristics. They're all extremely culinarily versatile, inexpensive, and high in carbohydrates, or sugar, which is the best source of short-term energy. To different degrees, they're all also relatively high on what's called the glycemic index, meaning that their carbohydrates are very readily accessible to the body. It means that when, you, when it starts to get broken down and absorbed, the glucose is, is um, basically harvested, re- rendered from the potato very fast. That's a good thing for the human body that it needs to have fuel for the brain, fuel for the central nervous system, fuel for muscles. As with high fat content, it's especially a good thing if you're working physically hard and eating a limited diet. If you're overnourished and sedentary, though, like a lot of us are, it might be a problem, especially if you're suffering from any of the diseases that are endemic to the overnourished and sedentary, such as type 2 diabetes. For a person with any problems of managing their blood sugar, such as on someone with diabetes or someone with impaired glucose tolerance or, you know, during pregnancy, gestational diabetes kind of creeps up. I might say, when you have potatoes, don't have the biggest one you can find and have it with other things around it so that that glycemic spike isn't such a big deal. But I offer that as, again, a very specific piece of advice or tip for a very somewhat limited population and people who matter and for whom it will make a difference. And after that, then potatoes are back to the picture of their good food. You know, they've been on the planet forever. It's got a lot of good stuff. It's grown out of the ground food. And so eating only one thing is a really bad idea. But if you're forced to, you could do worse than having it be potatoes. For one thing, they have a better micronutrient content than, say, wheat. Good amounts of vitamin C and potassium, for instance. And they're much easier to make edible. Remember all that grinding and soaking and sorting and drying you have to do to make weed into bread? With a potato, you just dig it up, clean off the dirt, and boil it. Boom, dinner. They also require much less space and attention to grow than wheat does. And one or two good-sized potatoes make a reasonably satisfying meal, even for an adult. And because they grow underground, they aren't as fragile as wheat or corn or even rice. A storm that might level a field of grain and ruin an entire year's harvest would leave a field of potatoes relatively untouched, safely buried down in the dirt. If you add a second food that contains good amounts of protein and fat, like milk, to your potatoes, you have a more or less nutritionally complete diet. So, with just a small plot of potatoes and a cow, a poor family could produce enough food to feed itself all year long. It wouldn't be an exciting menu, but it would be adequate. All of these things helped make the large-scale adoption of potato farming in northern Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries nothing less than an agricultural revolution. Before the coming of the potato, the poor of Europe were totally dependent on cereal grains. And as a result, famines were frequent, rampant, and devastating. Between 1500 and 1800 in France, there was a major nationwide famine at least once every 10 years, and innumerable local famines. And even when there was food, the diet of the poor was almost exclusively wheat, bread or porridge made from flour and beer. So diseases like scurvy that we now know to be micronutrient deficiencies were a constant threat, especially in the rapidly growing cities 
where land was at a premium, so people couldn't have kitchen gardens and therefore had limited access to fresh vegetables. The potato changed everything. As its popularity spread across Europe, it effectively doubled the continent's food supply. Of course, the pendulum swung too far in that direction in many parts of Europe, sometimes creating an over-dependence on potatoes among the poor. When an unexpected blight struck down the potato crop in Ireland in the 1840s, it caused one of the most famous and terrible famines in history. But taken as a whole, the introduction of the potato prevented far more famines in Europe than it caused. By helping find a way to nourish a huge urban workforce successfully using a relatively small amount of land, it's really a major factor in allowing the Industrial Revolution to happen. And industrialization, you'll remember, is what created our hamburger in the first place. Next time, we're going to wrap up our examination of the hamburger by returning to the heart of the matter, the beef, and asking a simple question. Why eat meat at all? Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Maudine Nelson and Andrew Smith. Two other invaluable resources were the articles How the Potato Changed the World by Charles C. Mann, Smithsonian Magazine, November 2011, and How the Potato Changed the World's History by William H. McNeil from the journal Social Research, Volume 66, Number 1. This podcast has been a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash do slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science, where you can see photo galleries from our visits to some of the places we feature in this series. And please also feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science in the City program via email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.